Welcome to the Pro Politics Podcast. I'm Zach McCrary. I've been working in politics for the better part of two decades, but at heart, I'm a political junkie who wants to talk to interesting people involved in politics. Today, my guest is Andy Johnson, a veteran Democratic media consultant who's helped tell a lot of interesting stories of candidates in her career, names like Obama, Klobuchar, Leahy, Inslee, Nighthorse Campbell, among others, and she has an interesting story of her own intersecting early with some of the pioneers of the media consulting industry. We talked through memorable moments of her career, including working on numerous important races leading to her current time as a partner at GPS Impact. Andy Johnson, tell me a bit how you grew up. Well, I am the youngest of four kids, grew up in Eugene, Oregon. My father was a trial lawyer and my mom a journalist. Um, she's actually 94 and she's still a journalist. She publishes the Eugene Weekly and writes a weekly column for it called The Slant, if you want to check it out. It's pretty interesting. Local politics. So I grew up with politics was all around us. It was sort of in the ether at our house. My grandfather had been mayor of a small town in Ohio, Kenmore, Ohio, before they came to Oregon. In fact, I have on the wall a flyer from his campaign, and he ended his slogan was, let's return this clean young man to office. As a political ad maker, I thought, well, yeah, that's, that's a slogan, a slogan for the times. But it was always in the air, and I think my parents became really interested in politics when they went to University of Oregon. They got a visit from Al Lowenstein, who was at the time president of the National Student Association. Um, he came to visit U of O campus and uh, met with my dad, who was student body president. My mom was editor of the Daily Paper. And Al just really piqued their interest in national politics. Al actually ended up becoming a congressman from Long Island for one term, but he got them very interested in politics. And then fast forward to 1968, he was involved in um, Robert Kennedy's national campaign reached out to my father, who was a lawyer in Eugene, and convinced him to become the state chair for Robert Kennedy. I was too young at the time to really remember it, but that fast-forwarded then to 1980. My dad became state chair for Ted Kennedy in 1980. And at that point, I was in high school. My parents opened the house. We became kind of a flop house for advanced people, field people, field staff, moved into all the empty bedrooms. My siblings had all gone off to college, and so I was there alone. And it was a rocking good time for a teenager. <laughs> it was 1980 and it was the Kennedy campaign. I was surrounded by young people who, who were working on a presidential and my dad was very involved. And so when Ted Kennedy came to town to visit, I got to ride on the, on the bus, on the press and the campaign bus, which was a blast. And they actually assigned me to get these snacks for the senator. And I still remember the list. It said rum, raisin, ice cream, brie, and stoned wheat thins. And I thought, okay, this is a great job. This is the job that I want to do. Of course, I had no idea that you could do it as a career, but that's really, that was my first taste of politics and was so interesting to me. That was sort of my first taste, but then I got sidetracked and didn't end up going into politics until many years later. We'll say a bit about the politics of Oregon of the 60s and 70s and 80s a little bit. We now know it as somewhat competitive, but generally a pretty progressive blue state. But what were your experiences? Who were the big dominant figures in that era that made an impression on you? People think of it as being very, very blue. It's not nearly as blue as the other states on the West Coast. It's much more purple, and it's really divided into the Cascades. Where I grew up, Eugene, Oregon, is incredibly progressive. It's a college town. 
And it was very active in the anti-Vietnam War movement. In fact, my parents had been Republicans at one point and their families had been, but then the Vietnam War sort of changed everything. And Wayne Morris, very famous senator from Oregon, changed parties. There was also Packwood and Hatfield. So there was a long tradition in Oregon. There was Tom McCall. There was a long tradition of progressive Republicans, and that was always dominant We were family friends with a guy named Jim Weaver, who was a congressman for many, many years. It's now the seat held by Val Hoyle, who is a client of ours. My brother worked for him. He was a good family friend, very progressive, very environmentally focused. And that was even true of the Republicans in Oregon, is they were oftentimes pro-choice. They took interesting stands on the Vietnam War. And Tom McCall, as governor, was always a conservationist. So a long history of that in Oregon. And so you mentioned this political interest early, but that actually didn't exhibit itself professionally for some time. So talk a little bit about your path toward working in politics. You know, I wonder, does anybody wake up in the morning and say, I want to be a media consultant? I mean, maybe they do now, but they certainly didn't when I was growing up. I mean, it was such a small industry. I followed my siblings east. I went to Williams College in Massachusetts and majored in German, of all things, also not a traditional path for a political consultant. I intended to join the Foreign Service and uh, started studying for the Foreign Service exam and thought, ooh, I really need plan B. Um, This is a lot of work. So I was taking a class in documentary filmmaking, and that piqued my interest. So I moved to New York City after I graduated from Williams, armed with a degree in German, and got a job at a small documentary film company actually doing research auf Deutsch. My degree was used for a hot minute um, in my career, but documentary filmmaking doesn't pay the bills. And so I got a second job at a huge post-production facility called National Video Center. That was sort of the heyday of post-production in New York City, and it was a huge sprawling facility on 42nd and 10th Avenue, which in the 80s was a was a pretty rough place. This is way before Rudy Giuliani transformed Times Square. But we had a national video. We had eight, eight or nine edit rooms. MTV and Dr. Ruth were one floor below us. Spanish International Network was one floor above us. And we had two shifts a day of editing. We had from 10 in the morning to 6.30, and then 6.30 to 2 a.m. It was so busy that, you know, it was sort of 16 edit rooms going every day, just pumping out content. And I was hired as a scheduler, and I worked a swing shift. And I was assigned two clients, Roger Ailes and Joe Slade-White. I think they thought, well, she has a college degree, so we'll give her the political clients. And at that point, Roger Ailes, this is before CNBC even, so he was a political ad maker. Clients Bush and Quayle and- Mitch and, McConnell, famously, he did the very first Mitch McConnell Senate race. Yep. He actually did that ad at National Video. I know the people who shot the very famous ads. And so I worked for both of them for several months um, and for other clients at the facility and um, was offered a job by both Joe and Roger Ailes' wife at the time, Norma and decided obviously to go with Joe White. And it turned out that I was one day I was in the uh in the machine room and they were making copies of Joe's spots and I asked what that was for and he said that he was pitching a client in Oregon to run for governor. And I thought really a guy in New York City is going to do something for someone running for office in Oregon and it was Neil Goldschmidt uh, who ran for governor in 1986. So that was the first campaign I worked on. 
Well, I want to ask about Joe Slade White, but in your interactions with Roger Ailes, obviously a big personality and started Fox News, left Fox News under a cloud, all of that. People listening to this podcast know the details. Is there anything you picked up from Roger Ailes? Anything that stands out to you about what you observed in that era from a big name like Roger Ailes? I mean, they were very, you know, it was a, it was a stark contrast between Joe and, and Roger Ailes' shop. I mean, Joe was was very loose, was sort of like, if you compare it with music, I mean, jazz, you know, and he would sort of come into the edit room and have an idea for a spot, but he would sort of let it take flight on its own in some ways. And Roger, it was a very disciplined, they were in there every single day, nine to five. His wife, Norma, was there every day making spots and very, very disciplined and hitting all of their marks. Um, He had a big team of people around him. Everyone I talked to thought I was crazy as a woman to want to go into political consulting. But I did see Norma, who was one of the very few women um, in there making ads. And I thought, okay, well, I can do this. But there certainly were no, the, all the big names in political consulting at that point were were male. And a lot of them came from Madison Avenue, from advertising and actually documentary filmmaking. People like Charles Guggenheim and Bob Squire, they were documentary filmmakers. So it was a very different field than it is today. Talk to me a little bit about how the production process has changed since you started in the 80s, whether it's the editing or other elements, production process has evolved. You know, I was thinking about this. There, there have been a couple of revolutions in production, which have fueled changes in our industry. When I started, you know, and for a long, long time after that, we shot everything on 16 millimeter film, which was it was great because it forced discipline on film. One roll of film is about 10, 11 minutes, and then you have to reload the film. And you think about videotape, well, you just run a tape forever. And so, and it was also very slow. Like we would shoot on film and then we would send it to the lab. It would get processed overnight. We would sync it the next day with the audio because that was recorded separately. Then we would transfer it to videotape. We were shooting on videotape and then we would start editing. So the editing process took three days after we shot the material. You also, you know, you were always always fairly nervous about it because you never got to see, see it until it went to the lab. Like, is there even an image on here? Of course, you couldn't look at the negative film. So that was a little nerve wracking, especially as a producer and working for Joe White, we had clients a lot of West Coast clients. And so there was a lot of travel. We had Bill Sheffield in Alaska, and we had did a race in Hawaii. We had Booth Gardner in Washington State, Neil Goldschmidt. And so you were flying across country with this negative film, not knowing if there was anything on it. So it's a far cry from today. And then that was sort of the first revolution. The second revolution was um, when we went from analog to digital. So when we went from film, then we went to videotape, but it was literally physically tapes. And then now it's all digital and it's, you know, data and it's a whole new world. But I was recalling that, you know, when I, especially when I worked for Saul Shore is that we would have to make individual copies of every spot called a dub. And those would have to be FedEx to every station. And we would oftentimes put staff members on planes to deliver ads or come up with something creative, but it was an arduous process. I mean, we would be running to FedEx at midnight trying to get things on planes. And, you know, now you press a button and the spot is there. And let me come back to Joe Slate White now, was a big name in the political consulting industry for decades. He passed away in the last year or two. Can you give a little bit of background on him? You mentioned how your paths crossed, but a little bit of background on him, 
what you learned from them, if there's a, a lesson or a maxim that you find still rattling around your head a few decades after crossing paths with him for the first time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Joe was very influential in my life and in, in politics. I worked for him for several cycles from 1986 through 92 and was his producer for that whole time. And it was a very small firm. We were two or three people most of the time. And, you know, Joe's background, he was first, he was at WordPress. Then he started doing radio ads. And he was a big believer in something called the Responsive Cord, which some people will recognize, but it was a book written by Tony Schwartz about advertising how it needs to connect with the listener or the viewer. And so that you need to touch on something that is familiar to them, that they relate to for it to really be effective. You have to have a conversation with them that they buy into. Um, And it was a whole philosophy that infused everything that Joe did. When he hired you, you got a copy of the book and your first assignment was to read the book. And so, um, and I was lucky enough that I got to meet Tony Schwartz with Joe. I also think that learning from radio first really required you to become a great writer. You know, you don't have with radio, you don't have the bells and whistles of TV and it's just the naked word and you have to be very, very good. We always edited at night because Joe was a night owl, but um, then we could work during the day. So we would, you know, stumble out of the editing room at two or three in the morning on 42nd and 10th Avenue. And, you know, I was young. It felt it felt decadent and fun. I mean, it was kind of rock and roll. I would go out and advance shoots for him like three or four days in advance. He would show up. He always would have his legal pad. He was very, this is before computers. This is before, you know, the internet. And he would handwrite his scripts with a very specific pen. It was a barrel felt tip blacking pen on a wide space legal pad. And he could look at it and know when it was 30 seconds and when it was 60 seconds for either TV or radio. He really did teach me how to write and he taught me how to tell stories. And he was a masterful storyteller. There's a a couple of fun facts about Joe. Actually, on his third wedding, um, his three attendants were Will Robinson, David Dixon, and me, which um, is is an astounding uh, statement. But Three competitor media gurus. And um, we also, in 1988, we had an intern by the name of Michael Bennett. He was a Coro Fellow, which is a fellowship in public affairs in New York City. And he did one of his rotations with us long before he was Senator Michael Bennett. Joe Slate White, I believe, was a longtime Biden advisor, Biden ad maker at one point. Well, what about yourself? When did you feel, whether it was in this era, maybe it was a little later, but when did you feel like you had established yourself as a media consultant in those earlier years? Was it a race, a campaign? You felt figured out how it all worked. Well, I think one of the first where I was really alone in an edit room making decisions and everything was, I mean, Ben Nighthorse Campbell, um, before he was a senator, before he was a Republican was congressman and he was a client of ours. And we used to edit at a place called the Harriman Center. I don't know if people are familiar with it, but the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee used to own an editing facility uh, in the DNC headquarters in the basement. And they would give congressional campaigns in-kind contributions of editing time or even a crew that we would sometimes send out. We would go and edit. Again, they also had two shifts a day. They had two editing rooms. Um, and you would go in there hauling, you know, three or four boxes of tapes. You had to take tapes everywhere you went. I edited the Ben Night Horse Campbell spot saddle up for his congressional, not the, the Senate race. You know, that was something that I'm incredibly proud of. And went on to become, Joe made that sort of Ben's anthem and became 60-second ad for his Senate campaign that was wildly successful. And that was after I had left Joe. But that was one of the first ones. And then I would say during my time with with Saul Shore, 
I did a lot of work with the teachers, especially early on, um, working at first with Sandra Feldman, who was president of the UFT, and then Randy Weingarten, and getting a lot of independence on that. And so I think it's something that evolved over time. I've always been sort of on the creative end of this, but it's it, there's been years of developing uh, sort of my own style and my own clients at this point. Thinking about campaigns that meant a lot to me, or especially some hard losses, one of them I thought about was one of the first campaigns I did with Joe Slade White was Harriet Woods. Yeah, in Missouri. And so I got to know her on her, the third campaign she had. And um, Joe White had done her first campaign against John Danforth, and she lost. And then she ran for lieutenant governor and won. And then she was going to run against Kit Bond. And Joe didn't get hired for that one, which I think was very disappointing to Joe at the time. But through a series of events, he actually did get hired. And the campaign manager reached out to Joe, found him at his house in the Hamptons. And then Joe called me. I was visiting family in Los Angeles and said, meet me in St. Louis. And I said, okay, let's uh, all in. I really liked Harriet. And um, that was a heartbreaker. There was a great article written about that by Stephen Roberts in the New York Times. And it was titled Politicking Goes High Tech. And I laugh about that now, but that's sort of what it felt like. I think we had gone, that was when campaign ads were really going from film to videotape. And the idea that you could make something and get it to stations that fast was mind boggling. But that was a hard loss. That was a really hard loss. And then in 1994, the other one that really affected me was just the contract with America. And and just losing the House really affected me as well. And in particular, there was a congressman from Nebraska, Peter Hoagland, um, who lost. And Peter had been a client when I worked with Joe Slade White. And then when I came to Saul's, he actually then hired Saul's firm, not related to me necessarily, ended up working with him over two different firms. That was a really brutal campaign. And it just felt like Peter losing and losing the house felt very defeated. There were a few times when I thought, can I really keep doing this? But once you learn it, there's nothing else like it. I did leave for one year to do documentary films for a company called Hillman and Carr in Washington, D.C., but the pace was way too slow for me. And at five o'clock when everyone would leave the office, I'd like, where are you going? What, what's going on? And uh, But during that time, I met Dottie Lynch, who was a pollster. You're probably um, familiar with her. She was CBS News senior political editor and famous pollster. She always said, when I come into the office early in the morning, I look around and if I see someone at their desk, I take a little note. And when I leave in the evening and someone's still at their desk, I take a little note. That work ethic is something that has served me well. And I don't know when I'll have the next opportunity to talk to somebody who had been around uh, Ben Nighthorse Campbell, but an interesting guy, maybe the most successful Native American political figure in the history of the country, was an Olympian in judo, I think, at some point, was elected as a Democrat, then switched to be a Republican in the Senate. I think the last time he came up on this podcast was with Tom Daschle, and Ben Nighthorse Campbell provided the winning vote to make Tom Daschle leader of the Democrats in 1995 and promptly switch parties a few days later. So an interesting guy in a lot of different ways. Is there anything you can share about him? Yeah. I mean, I remember the first time we did the a shoot, it was in Durango, Colorado, not an easy place to get to. We drove a, a grip truck down from Denver, actually. He had a beautiful place there. He was very generous. He was very generous with his time. He was very engaging with everyone that he worked with. In typical Joe fashion, we did the shoot without specific scripts. We would just do an interview with him, which several 
effective spots came out of that. We had them sit around a table and talk to kids, just sort of impromptu. I mean, very easy, very easy to be around, but an incredible bio. 1988 was the year that we did the Saddle Up ad. We did a lot of congressional races around the West. We had Tom Udall, we had Bill Sarpolis in Texas. We had Gun McKay in, in Utah, and we were you know driving a grip truck all over the West to go shoot all the stuff, of course, all on film. I mean, it was a great experience, and I, I think I probably spent a week in Durango, which was a lot of fun. As you developed uh, your own sensibilities, what do you feel became to be unique about your style as an ad maker? What makes your approach a little different, maybe a lot different than how other media consultants might approach uh, a race? I think a few things, and people, this is an overused word, but I think that the ads that I make are really authentic, um, authentic to the candidate and the state and who we're trying to connect with. I think just going back to the responsive cord, that's something that is always in the back of my mind. Tony Schwartz, who did the famous Daisy ad, he was telling people what they might have already thought in the Daisy ad, which is why it was so effective. It wasn't new information, but I also think respecting the, the viewer's and their opinion and what they bring to the table. I also think there, especially when I started out now, there are many more women in the field. I think being a woman and having that and then, you know, becoming a mom and suburban college educated woman, uh, it turns out that that's pretty important to the Democratic Party. So I think I can relate to a lot of those issues. But I think just an authenticity. I also try and have a really varied interest in music, film, and things that influence me. And so, you know, when I find a new voiceover or something and they say, well, I've never done political ads before, I'm I'm like, perfect. <laughs> oh, good. I don't want someone who's ever done a political ad. So always trying to find things kind of outside because political ads can, can look alike and can sound alike. And so try to break out of that. And again, a term that's overused a lot, try not to make anything that's cookie cutter and make everything really unique. So there are some formulas that work, but it's also nice to have fresh ideas. And you mentioned it a couple times, but can you give a little bit of the Cliff Notes version or or what you continue to go back to with this, the book you mentioned, The Responsive Chord by uh, Tony Schwartz, you mentioned a famous ad maker from the, the 60s. What should people know? What do you take from that work and what sticks with you so many years after you first uh, became aware of it? Part of The Responsive Chord, what is so effective about it is the respect it gives to the listener and the viewer is that that person comes with a whole set of experiences and beliefs and that you have to recognize that and, um, you know, basically have a conversation with them. Tony was also a brilliant writer, but some of the most effective ads he made, like the Daisy ad, there's very little copywriting. And I think that there is a spareness to his work. A 30 second ad is basically 75 words or less. If you look at some political ads you see on the air, they're 90 words and you feel it. It's really crammed in there. And, you know, there's a lot of pressure to do that because of the cost of advertising and the number of messages. I don't need to tell you as a pollster, but it's, you know, you want to jam a lot in there. Keeping it 75 words or less. If you look at a Nike ad, it might be 10 words. It might be three words or it might be no words. Joe White did several ads. He did one ad for Neil Goldschmidt that had no voiceover at all. It just had music and words on the screen to try and embrace that as an idea and realize that less is more, especially when you have strong images, is a good way to go on campaigns and takes a lot of work to get in it to 75 words, but it, it's really more of a craft than anything else. You just learn how to do it. 
And we touched on Ben Nighthorse Campbell already and some others. Let me throw out just a, a couple other folks that I know you worked with and get your sense of what you did for them, what makes some of these folks interesting, successful political figures. Another big name I know you worked with is uh, Pat Leahy in Vermont, recently retired and until 2022, I believe, was the only Democrat who'd ever been elected to the Senate from Vermont, uh, given its roots as a Republican state. And and then you had Bernie Sanders, his colleague for a while, who does not identify as a Democrat. So Leahy, really one of the most important figures in the history of Vermont politics. What can you share about your time working with around Senator Pat Leahy? Well, there's one ad in particular that stands out. It's an ad we did. The first cycle that we worked for uh, Senator Leahy, he was already in the Senate. He had had Ken Swope, who was an ad maker from Boston, did um, some of his early ads. But in 1998, he hired Saul Shore and the rest of Saul's team to work on it. We did an ad. I was a big fan of Ken Burns at the time. Ken Burns, the documentary filmmaker. And so, you know, all of us, it kind of came up with an idea to do an ad. Uh, It ended up being called Farm and that we would make it entirely with black and white stills. We hired a great photographer, Shep Sherbell who I had met years earlier, and he went up to Vermont. And this just shows you, again, the pace of things at the time. He spent three days taking stills of people, farmers, dairy farmers in Vermont. He shot 75 rolls of film. He sent me the contact sheets. He wouldn't give up the actual film, sent me the contact sheets, went through all of them. We ordered enlargements, and then we had to shoot those, very much how Ken Burns would make a documentary. So an homage to Ken Burns. So this is days and days and days later. The script was incredibly beautiful. Actually, the script was written by Christopher Close, who there before Short Johnson Magnus, there were Short Johnson Close. So he was a partner in that firm. We made this 60-second ad about dairy farmers in, in Vermont. What was interesting about the ad and sort of telling about both the campaign and Senator Leahy, he never appeared in the ad. And I don't know if, you know, how many people would agree to paying for a 60-second ad that they didn't appear in. The only time that you ever see anything related to Leahy is in the disclaimer, his name, of course. And then there's a bumper sticker that shows up at one point. He called it a little documentary, a little film. And so we did, we had the luxury of doing 60 second ads because Vermont is affordable. Patrick Leahy is beloved in Vermont. We had a lot to work with and a, a really fantastic campaign staff, amazing people. And I know you and your operation, your crew were among the handful of media firms brought in to be part of the Obama 2008 effort. What are your main memories? What are your main takeaways from that Obama 2008 campaign? Well, I will tell you that I had a four-year-old and a one-year-old at home. So I do, <laughs> I do have some memories, but there, a lot of it was uh, I was in survival mode. What I remember was they had created a fairly competitive atmosphere that there were multiple media firms involved. We were all jockeying to get our ads on the air, which was really smart. And so everyone was really trying to be on top of their game. I wrote and made an ad called Three Bedroom Ranch, which ran during the NBC Summer Olympics. And just, it seems almost ludicrous to say this now, but TV was still analog. And NBC said, well, if you're going to run a national ad, it has to be high definition. And we were like, oh, okay, what's high definition? And I talked to the studio and they said, well, that's going to be a two-day render to make the ad. We said, okay, we're going to do a two-day render. We got the ad on. We did we a series of ads, and they were ad-tested, and that ad tested very well. And so that ran nationally during the Summer Olympics. We also did the ad that closed out the negative closer, Rearview Mirror, which was shot in Philadelphia, right outside Philadelphia. And uh, that 
I, I, you know, that did not have to be high definition because that did not run during the Olympics. And that was, that was the difference, but it's just crazy to think about it now because of course, you know, we work, we work in something called 4k, which is even higher definition than anything we could have made at that time. It's just a huge amount of data and information. And, and so it's, it's pretty incredible that we would spend two days waiting for the machines to catch up, but that's what it took at the time. Three bedroom ranch. It's interesting. It kind of surprised me that it tested as well as it did. I'm not sure I should admit that, but I mean, I think it was very clear. It laid out Obama's economic plan. It begins with a plan, a plan to build, a plan to put hardworking Americans first. Barack Obama, he'll put the middle class ahead of corporate interests to grow the economy, end tax breaks for companies that ship jobs overseas, help businesses that create jobs here, invest in education, cut taxes for working families, and make energy independence an urgent national priority. I'm Barack Obama, and I approve this message. It laid them out in a very clear way, graphically and with the audio. And in the background, we had footage of a of a house being built. It actually started out as a three-bedroom ranch, hence the name. But the footage we used in the final ad was a bungalow. So um, it should have been called a three-bedroom or a two-bedroom bungalow. But I think it was really clear and easy to digest at a point when the airways were clogged with other ads. The clarity of the message and of that specific ad cut through. Rearview mirror, I mean, we were trying to tie McCain to Bush on economic economic record. And so the whole idea was, if you want to see where he'll take the economy, look behind you. And so we had an individual driving a pickup truck, and he's looking in the rearview mirror, and he sees Bush and then McCain and Bush. And as he's driving, we put all of the, instead of doing supers, which usually typically go on the screen in the lower third or somewhere else on the screen in ads, we put them on road signs. You would see them go by. I'm Barack Obama, and I approve this message. Wonder where John McCain would take the economy? Look behind you. John McCain wants to continue George Bush's economic policies. As president, he'd provide no tax breaks to 101 million Americans, but keep tax breaks for companies that ship our jobs overseas. He wants $4 billion in new tax breaks for big oil and would tax your health care benefits for the first time ever. Look behind you. We can't afford more of the same. I think, again, it felt a little bit different than everything else and felt pretty fresh and interesting. And it didn't shove the information at you. I mean, it made it very digestible. I'm a big fan of that, of ads that are pretty easy to digest. And another presidential you had a role in was the Amy Klobuchar in 2020, certainly one of the campaigns in that primary that she did not become the nominee, but certainly exceeded expectations, making herself a household name during the process. Tell me about the Klobuchar 2020 campaign and how you were thinking about it from the media front. At that point, Jay Hauser and I had just joined with GPS Impact. Roy Temple, who I met first in Missouri politics with the Carnahan, various Carnahan campaigns, had started a firm uh, years before. And then I had worked with him, run into him more recently than Carnahan on Tom Wolf campaign and Bob Casey. And he was doing digital media and thought we should really do integrated media. I think it's interesting that in politics, it's we've been slow to kind of embrace integrated as opposed to regular advertising has done it for a long time. I mean, why should where you digest your media determine what the media is? It's, it's certainly not how the viewers of the public see it. 
that was sort of our trial balloon was the Amy Klobuchar campaign that we were going to do integrated. And it turns out that integrated media works very well in New Hampshire because New Hampshire does not really have a distinct media market. They have a station, but you know, you have to get creative or you have to buy Boston and in a campaign with limited resources, that's not always an option. We were able to use integrated in a way that was effective. She obviously did very well in New Hampshire, exceeded expectations. It was very interesting working with her. I mean, she is, I don't throw this term around, but absolutely brilliant. Every word, everything is going to be just right. It was very interesting and it was a very rewarding process. She had a couple of very good debate performances. Her announcement also was incredibly memorable, near blizzard. Amy is incredibly good at retail politics. Very, very smart, but also incredibly relatable. And I think that came through in her ads, but also just her appearances. And nobody works harder. Just incredible work ethic, incredible record in the U.S. Senate. And that's something that appealed to voters in New Hampshire in particular. Those are qualities that contributed to her success. And a very recent win you and your firm had was with Sherelle Parker, who won the Democratic primary recently for the open seat mayoral. In Philadelphia, she'll be Philadelphia's next mayor. A crowded field, campaigns with different profiles, different niches to appeal to different segments of the uh, Democratic primary electorate. Can you break down that race a little bit and how Sherelle Parker broke from the pack? I mean, we're incredibly proud of that win. Worked on that with Jay Hauser. I live in Philadelphia, so it's particularly meaningful for me to elect the first woman and the first woman of color mayor. She's. I realize there's a November election. She won the primary, but it's Philadelphia, so... Um, I think we can assume that if the sky doesn't fall, Sherelle Parker will be mayor. I think Sherelle was underestimated from day one. The intersection of race and gender is real and the bias is real. And I think a lot of people did not take her seriously. We took her very seriously on the first shoot. The minute she started talking to camera, it was wow. No teleprompter, just so good and so strong, so likable. She felt so real. She felt like someone, going back to Ed Rendell, it's like someone who just felt like they embodied Philadelphia. It is in her DNA. And I think that came out in the ads and it came out again, talking about, I mean, wonderful debate performances, just amazing. But also just the campaign, Sin Harris and Aaron Platt ran a very good campaign. She had quite assembled quite a team around her, got endorsements far and wide and crept up the middle. You know, I was confident that it, she was going to win from really the beginning. There were a few days where I was nervous, but just knowing Sherelle and knowing how much talent there is there, I think she's going to be a great mayor. Looking forward to it. And the issue of crime and public safety has gotten a lot of Democratic candidates at times tied in knots. How do you talk about it? It's from you know, Eric Adams in New York to Brandon Johnson in Chicago to the LA mayoral race to the Philadelphia race where... It appears, at least from the outside, that crime, public safety is, I don't know if you'd call it the dominant issue, but a really, really important issue, perhaps the the fundamental issue in a lot of these campaigns. What can other candidates, other operatives take? What lessons should they learn from the Philadelphia mayoral race, how Sherelle Parker talked about crime and public safety? There was an ad, um, actually Jay Hauser wrote and and directed it, an ad uh, where Sherelle is on a playground and she's talking about her son and just talking about it from a mother's perspective, a Black mother. That ad really cut through. Like many parents, we've had the talk with our son. I'm Sherelle Parker. 
As mayor and the mother of a black boy, I hold bad cops accountable, but I refuse to allow crime and violence to take over our city. I'll hire more community police to walk our neighborhoods, expand mental health care, invest in mentoring at-risk teens, and get illegal guns off our streets. We'll end this sense of lawlessness and bring order back to our city. It was very emotional and she was wonderful in it. And it was actually the second ad that we had featuring her son, Langston, who was great too. But I mean, talking for her, and it's going to be different with every candidate, obviously, but talking about it from, a, you know, the personal concern and as a mother was something that that resonated and no one else was doing. I mean, we leaned in heavily to um, the fact that she was going to be the first woman elected. We did another ad where we showed a bunch of girls looking at a wall of photographs of all the mayors of Philadelphia. And we said there have been 99 mayors and not one of them looks like me or like you. And it was Sherelle narrating. 99 mayors. Not one looks like you or me. I'm Sherelle Parker. As your next mayor, let's just say I'll bring a different touch. A different approach to bring hope and pride back to our neighborhood. A different strategy to end this sense of lawlessness and restore order to our city by protecting workers, rebuilding our schools, and making Philly more affordable. And so we were the first to kind of lean in heavily to it's time. It's it's time that we elect a woman. It's time we elect a woman of color. Your roots are in the Pacific Northwest. A candidate that I know that has become a fixture in Pacific Northwest politics is Jay Inslee, numerous term governor from Washington state, but somebody who I know that you intersected with even before he became governor. First work for Jay Inslee in 1998. I'm Saul Shore. And I got hired to do his campaign for Congress. And 1998 was when the Monica Lewinsky scandal had just broken and there had just been a vote in Congress to impeach. And Rick White um, had voted to, to extend the hearings. So Jay had the idea of coming up with a script, which was censure, not impeach. So that was sort of the content of the ad. And that, you know, we'd spent too much time on this. We had to get back to the nation's business. So that was the content but we had to move really quickly. This was going to be the first ad of anyone putting this message on TV. Jay was in Seattle. We were in Philadelphia. So at the time, remember, it's 1998. Technology is pretty slow. So Jay recorded the back half of the ad to camera in Seattle. And then they got it to us by satellite feed, which you would go somewhere that had a satellite connection and you would book the coordinates on a satellite. They would ping it up and that we would bring it down. So we had to go to public TV station in Philadelphia, WHYY, and they brought it down for us. We took that bit of footage into the studio. We worked as fast as we could, made an ad. Ironically, Rick White's media consultant was in the room next to us, probably making an ad against us at the same time. And then we had to go back to WHYY in Philadelphia and ping the ad back up to the satellite to get it to Seattle, to the stations, and then ask each station to pull it down at a certain time with the quadrants. So logistically, I mean, it was sort of twofold, right, that you had this this message you wanted to get out, but then you also had these logistical hurdles you had to get over to be the first ad nationally to do that. And it turned out that that was the right message at the right time. And Jay went on to win that campaign. He's come up a couple of times. I have a, a previous episode with Saul Shore that people can go find in the archives, but you worked with him for a long, long time. I don't know. Do you have a favorite Saul Shore story, something you picked up 
from him over the years? I have lots of Salt Shore stories. Worked with Saul for well over two decades, so that, a very long time. And I remember when he first hired me, I had left Joe Slade White and he called me up and he said, come to Philadelphia. I'll pay you more than Tom Jones makes in a week in Vegas. <laughs> One, that was absolutely not true. He did not pay me even close to that amount, but um, it was a good decision to come to Philadelphia and work with him. And the, you know, the firm at that time was Shore and Associates, and then it became Shore Johnson Close and then Shore Johnson Magnus finally. And now it's Shore and Associates again. I very close with Saul actually working for Senator Casey's re-election with him and worked with him on Josh Shapiro's win for governor. Huge win, hugely important to those of us who live in Pennsylvania and those of us who live in America. Work with him all the time. I would say about Saul, Joe White taught me how to tell stories. Saul Shore taught me how to stay one step ahead of my opponent is that he is always gaming it out in ways that no one else is thinking about and is two or three steps ahead and always has the next ad or the response ad in the can. A relentless worker, unbelievable work ethic, a master strategist. And I think, you know, he just taught me that you never want to chase the ball. I mean, you always want to be out in front of it. People think Saul Shore is intense now. Let me tell you, in the 90s, he was really intense. <laughs> so so we no was not an option and we were going to get it done. And technology has made all of our lives easier in some ways. And also there's no division between to work and play. But we used to be in the edit room every night until midnight, seven nights a week. I mean, it was it was nonstop and it was a lot of fun. But he also taught me how to win. I'm grateful. Is there a work habit you have, something that's maybe a little quirky or unconventional, but that works for you? What's your strangest work habit? What I do is if I'm really stuck, especially when I'm writing a script, which I write a lot of scripts, a lot, a lot of scripts. In fact, I can look at a script on paper, much like Joe White could, and I can tell you if it's long. I mean, I'll say it looks long and everyone says, well, what do you mean it looks long? It's a TV script. And I'm like, oh, well, it looks like it's 82 words. So you, you know, you do it long enough. Like I said, it's a craft. Um, but if I get really stuck, I put on some music and I go for a walk. And usually I blast Prince at full volume, which is my go-to. And then I'm inspired. And I, I'm also inspired not only by his music, but by his work ethic. So uh, I think Questlove once said that if it's three in the morning and I'm trying to work on something and I'm thinking, oh God, I'm so tired. I just think about Prince and, and what he went through. So I have huge respect for that. I think it maybe comes from my Danish mother, but head down, work hard, one of my mottos. And I write huge volumes of scripts. And so it's when I get stuck, that's where I go. And what is your advice to the the folks that want to be in the next generation of media consultants? Someone early in their career, maybe has a campaign or two under their belt, maybe still in school. But what are some practical things that person should be doing to be preparing for a career specifically in political media? Well, one thing, you know, have a lot of interests. I mean, <laughs> go to museums go to concerts, listen to classical music, Looney Tunes used opera. If you watch only political ads and study only political campaigns, you're going to be stuck in first gear. Ideas come from a whole variety, have a wide variety of friends, you know, read a lot, give yourself a liberal arts education if you don't already have one. And so kind of steep yourself in all of that. I also think get a mentor it was something that in many ways was lacking in my life because there were not in my professional life, there weren't women doing what I was doing. And so there wasn't someone whispering in my ear, you can do this. 
And I just want to say to anyone out there who's looking for a mentor, especially women, hit me up because I will definitely be your sounding board and give you advice and let you vent and everything else. But, you know, when you have little kids and you're in the edit room until midnight, you wonder if you can do it. And so, and of course you can. And I had a mom and a sister who were backing me up, but I would say a mentor is helpful, someone that you can be a sounding board, but also just as I say to my kids every day, be interesting and be interested. That's sort of life advice, but it certainly works for media consulting. Well, let me pick at a couple of the threads on that. You get your start in this business in mid-late 80s. It's come up a time or two. You mentioned there weren't, I don't know if it's any women, there certainly weren't many women in these similar positions. Are there names that we should be familiar with, or if we're not, that we should be? Yeah. So a couple come to mind, but I mean, just to give a little bit of context for that time too, the first year that I made ads was 1986. And it's hard to believe, but the Senate at that point was comprised of 98 men and two women. The two women were both Republicans. So there wasn't even a Democrat in the U.S. Senate. Barbara Mikulski changed that, thankfully. But that was sort of the world that we were navigating And I think a lot of the consultants just reflected their client base. It wasn't Mad Men per se, but it wasn't 2023. There was a sense of a boys club. The consultants tended to look like their clients. Um, They made ads that looked and sounded by their clients. I was told repeatedly in the 80s and 90s and even in the aughts that you couldn't use a female voiceover because it lacked credibility and no one would believe it unless it was very targeted to women. Obviously, we've blown the lid off of that. We use women voiceovers all the time to great success. So thankfully, that's changed. But that was sort of gospel back then that you needed sort of the big voice of God for ads. But clearly, I remember meeting Mandy Grunwald. She was coming up at Sawyer Miller in New York City very successfully. And I ran into her at a place called Soundhound in mid-Manhattan. We both were using the same voiceover. Back then, we didn't have the technology to direct from a remote place. Now my voiceovers are scattered all over the nation and the world, and it doesn't matter where they are or where I am when I direct them, but we actually used to have to go to the studio. And I ran into her there and she made an impression on me and she was the ultimate trailblazer. I think she's still the only woman to be the lead ad maker on a winning presidential campaign to date. And that would have been what, Clinton 92? Yep. And I have had the the great honor of working with her on several campaigns. And so that's been really terrific. I think also Anita Dunn joined with Bob Squire and Bill Knapp, maybe just after that. But I was living and working in New York City. And so DC was kind of another world. I was working with Joe White. I was clearly aware, you know, of other women, but it was still pretty much we were wandering in the desert. And I think any woman in the business would say for years, I was the only woman on a call, the only woman in a meeting, the only woman on a shoot, editing rooms, the only woman on the letterhead. It just often takes women longer to get to the top. And of course, it's nothing about the woman, just like women in politics who are running for office. You have to prove you're qualified again and again. And then if you have kids, you have to prove your commitment again and again. A double-edged sword, but you fight through it. I was recalling it's all a little bit of a blur now, the blur of early motherhood. I remember directing shoots when I was hugely pregnant, which brings a <laughs> an audible gasp <laughs> when you show up on set. Uh, I remember schlepping my breast bump, you know, when my infants were at home and I was on the road and my husband used to teach at nights and I would bring the kids to the edit room and do homework late at night. And it was all great. You battle through it. 
one of the advantages is it keeps you really grounded. You're doing a lot of different things at once and it keeps you grounded to and tethered to reality. A lot of other women will say this too, but I mean, my husband and I have a partnership and it couldn't have been done without him. So my career is his career and his career is my career and he's a chef. So that's really, really lucky for me. <laughs> you look at something where things started to shift and you remember thinking, okay, well, this is a little yeah. different world. Partly Zoom makes it glaringly obvious when you're on a call, what the blend of people, I just think on a conference call, it, it, you didn't have the visual cue and it's not just for gender, but for race and age and a whole lot of other measures of diversity. Partly during the pandemic, I was seeing a shift on campaigns. I mean, I would say at GPS, probably half of our client list are now women, which is pretty remarkable. When you look back just in 1986, there were no Democratic women in the Senate. There were almost no media consultants. And so that's huge. I We have many campaigns at this point, which are majority women, and you get on the call and it's just, it's wonderful. There's a lot of work to do, but it's getting better. I do think, I mean, there were two things. And if I could pinpoint a time, it was probably the early aughts. Around there, I mean, there were women definitely in the field, but and I think two things happened. I think one was within the field, and there people started moving into media consultant laterally. Before it was very much like a law firm or an ad agency that you started, came in sort of at the bottom, and you worked your way up, eventually hoping to become a name partner, and that's how it worked at kind of the legacy firms. But at some point, it shifted, and there were people coming from campaigns to consulting and from committees to consulting. And I think that was a game changer. And that opened the door for women, people of color, LGBTQ, I mean, all kinds of things. And I think people understood the strength of having more diversity within the consulting world. And the other thing is, I mean, just as we saw the diversity, the shift in what happened in our elected office holders, the same thing happened with the consulting world. And so that was something obviously much bigger than just our field. But just as in 1986, the consulting world reflected the U.S. Senate, it now reflects the current Senate. There's a lot of work to do, like I said, but it's a far cry from where it was when I started in this field. So certainly there are challenges and you've touched on some of the hurdles and obstacles. Are there times where you thought it actually was an advantage or an asset being the only person in the room and perhaps having a different perspective? Definitely. I live in suburban Philadelphia, which is an important voting block. Married, working mom, got two kids. There are a lot of the issues that we talk about in ads and in campaigns are lived experiences for me, whether it's choice, public education, guns, are kids okay, the pandemic. I do a lot of work for the American Federation of Teachers and the United Federation of Teachers in New York. And so when we're writing those ads and talking about messaging, I understand it. I already speak that language. I had, like many other moms, I had a kid in the dining room and a kid down the hall while I was working the whole time. And so I understood the frustrations and the stresses. Not to overstate it, I've been incredibly fortunate and many women have had a much, much more difficult time than I have. And so I've had a lot of advantages, but at the same time, I think we do have some shared experience which can come out in the ads. That's a strength. Specifically on this front, is there any advice that you find yourself giving very specifically to young women in this field? It's advice I would give to women anywhere is not to compare yourself to others. I mean, you're going to find your own timeline and your own path, and it's going to work for you. As a pitch to our business, if you are interested in joining it or you're already in, you know, welcome to the greatest carnival on earth. I always say we're not nine to five people, we're 24-7 people. But the good news is, is 
it's never boring. Um, and the people around you are never boring, which is great. It's a great way to make a living. And if you're lucky, you also get to make a difference on the things you really care about. People I've helped elect from Sherelle Parker to Janet Napolitano in Arizona have made real differences in people's lives and specifically in women's lives. Even though it is 24-7, I mean, some of the things that I was able to do are advantages. You know, I did, when my daughter was three months old, I went on a shoot and I brought her with me. Not everyone can do that, obviously. Or if the babysitter didn't show up, my kids could come to the edit room and sit in the back um, while I did the work. So that was a distinct advantage. Our job is 24-7, but there's also strangely a lot of flexibility within that. But I also think sort of create a village. I mean, it's everyone who's a parent will tell you that it'll take a lot of people. And I just do when I get on these calls now, and there are a lot of women on, and some are moms and some aren't. And they talk about things in a really honest way, which was not happening 20, 30 years ago. When I, I do think that 20, 30 years ago, you you almost tried to hide the fact that you had, that there was a kid in the room behind you or that, you know, you might have other things pulling at your attention. You know, I don't have little kids at home. I'm sure that they still feel that, but I think it's just so much less. I think that people really talk about their kids and what they mean to them and that they're juggling a lot of stuff. And there's just a much more frank discussion about it rather than trying to hide that or make sure that people don't fear that you're being pulled in a direction other than the task at hand. Let's end on a recommendation. What is something, a book, a TV show, a movie, a recipe, a product, something you've gotten into recently that you'd recommend people give a try? I love to stream shows, especially ones that make me laugh. And Somebody Somewhere is one of my favorites. I've been watching that and I really love it. Just finished it. So I'll be looking for a new show. But I also... I have a 20 year old daughter who's a musician. So I'm always, she's always sending me recommendations for new bands and I send her recommendations for old bands and we meet somewhere in the middle. So we'll be spending my summer going to a few concerts with her, including dragging her to the Philadelphia orchestra tomorrow night. I love one band. They're not super new, but they're called Darling Side and they're really great. They do wonderful four-part harmonies and I have seen them live several times. I also like Greta Van Fleet, which is really at the other end of the spectrum and sounds more like a psychedelic rock, but I have seen them in Asbury Park and seen them in Philadelphia several times in concert and they're fantastic live. Those are two bands that I listen to quite a bit these days okay. and Prince. <laughs> well, this is probably the only podcast that will have both Greta Van Fleet and Wayne Morse in one uh, package here. <laughs> so this was a great walk through your career, some really fun stories and smart insights. Andy Johnson, thanks for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Pro Politics Podcast. Please subscribe so you can access each episode first thing every Tuesday morning. And if you're so inclined, leave a rating and a short review on your podcast app to help more people find this podcast. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook for updates on upcoming guests. Thanks for listening.